Right, we're back on air. A warm welcome to episode four of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, the podcast that takes the path less travelled on its journey through the history of bat and ball between England and Australia. We're celebrating the one Ashes Test wonders, the 45 cricketers still alive who were lucky enough to get a chance of Ashes glory and unlucky enough not to get a second bite of the cherry. So far, we featured Keith Slater, Ken Taylor and Fred Rumsey. What tales they've told, what times they've had. We're also honouring the 89 One Ashes Test wonders who have passed away and hearing how they fit into the patchwork quilt of Anglo-Antipodean rivalry. Eric Hollies, Alan Watkins, Bill Watson, Doug Insole, all united in their brief foray into the Ashes arena. If you've missed any of the episodes so far, you can catch up in the usual way on Spotify, Apple, Google and YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Once Ashes. You can find bonus material and photos on the website, onceuponatimeintheashes.com. You can email me, cricket at onceuponatimeintheashes.com. Or you can just sit back and listen. Fred Rumsey was in the hot seat last time out, and this is what one of today's guests had to say about him. I think as a quick left-arm bowler, he had every opportunity of playing a lot more cricket for England. Eric Russell there. And as well as being next on our One Ashes Test list, he also set up the Cricketers Association with Fred in 1967. Fred and I, one quick bowler to a batsman. <laughs> Fred was quick, you know. And we were, we were pally in a certain way. We were over at the Knights of St. John, the, the pub in St. John's Wood, where all the visiting sides used to go. And it was our, our pub, you know, after the match we would go there. And I think it was in that pub that, that Fred and I started talking about this. And that's how it started. Eric Russell played his one Ashes test on the 1965-66 to 66 Ashes tour. In an alternative universe, Fred was a key member of that tour, firing down his left-arm thunderbolts on those quick and bouncy Australian wickets long before Mitchell Johnson had conceived of the idea. But alas, Doug Insole barred his path. We'll hear more from Eric soon and find out how he came to be playing in that first test at Brisbane in December 1965, where he was joined by Peter Allen of Queensland, who was to make his one and only test appearance on his home ground. I did not bowl very well, not, not not well at all. It came as a complete surprise to me when I knocked Mike Smith over. Peter and Eric have much in common, as we'll find out soon. Both were 29 when playing in their one Ashes test. Both were in fine form during that Australian summer of 65 to 66. And both had reasons to curse injuries. And though it might not sound like it, both of them also hail from Scotland. Eric Russell was born in Dumbarton and Peter's father emigrated to Australia from Scotland in 1923. But before we hear from our leading men, let's fast forward to the third test of that series at Sydney in early 66, where a certain David Sincock of Adelaide was making his third and final test appearance and his first and last in the Ashes. David made his test debut a year before, aged only 22, in a one-off test against Pakistan claiming three for 67 in the first innings and one for 102 in the second. A solid performance and a thoroughly encouraging debut. But his most notable success came against Sir Garfield Sobers, 
You might remember that Keith Slater and Ken Taylor enjoyed some success against the great man. And I almost got booed because I got him leg before wicket for 11. And the crowd were most disappointed. So I picked up getting sobers three times. <laughs> I got him out in both innings at Middlesbrough once. I bowled him leg stick in the second innings. And I can still see him throwing his head back as if to say, fancy getting out to that duck egg. Not to be outdone, Fred Rumsey, playing for Somerset, took his 500th county championship wicket when having sobers of knots caught behind for a duck in 1968. However, David Sincock made a more lasting impression on sobers than any of this trio. Dennis Bryan, former player and president of West Torrens Cricket Club in Adelaide, tells of a grade game he played in between Adelaide University and Sobers' prospect in 1961. Dennis was playing with his second cousin, David Sincock. We were at university together, and the university has a team in, in the SACA comp. And uh, we're playing at um, Prospect Oval against Prospect, and the incoming batsman was Garfield Sobers. He said to me, what do you th- I was the keeper. He said, what do you think I ought to bowl? I said, bowl the wrong one first up. Oh, he said, no, I can't do that. What if he picks me? I said, he lives in Barbados. You live in Adelaide. He's never seen you before. So he bowled it, pitched outside off stump and hit his leg stump. And Sobers stood there. He looked at the square leg umpire and nothing happened. And I said, oh, Mr. Sobers, you're out. He said, how? I said, bowl. And off he went. And after the game, we're having a beer with him. And I said, why didn't you go? And he said, well, I've never seen a Chinaman's wrong and turn that much. I thought you knocked the bales off. And that was David's first ball to Sobers. It wasn't the only time that David bamboozled Sobers. David was selected for the tour to the West Indies in 1965, finally getting a game in the final test of that series at Port of Spain. And history was to repeat itself. The following is taken from Sobers' autobiography, 20 Years at the Top. I was bowled in the first innings by one of the most interesting bowlers I've ever played against, the slow, left-arm Chinaman and googly bowler, David Sincock. No one turned the ball more than Sincock, who was known in the team as Evil Dick. I'd first encountered him in Adelaide on a previous trip to Australia. None of us could read his googly. The ball fizzed through the air and he had to try to see which way it was spinning. The delivery which bowled me in Trinidad pitched well outside my leg stump and hit off. What happened, I said. And wicketkeeper Wally Grout said, Evil's done it again. David was to take two wickets in each innings of that match and in both innings he dismissed the all-rounder, Willie Rodriguez. Here's Willie's recollection of his dismissal in the second innings. He got me out uh, stumped. Well, I, I played at the ball and missed it. <laughs> I went forward and played at the ball, but it spun away. It, it was the Chinaman, because he first just tipped the bales off and I was gone. I don't think I've lasted too long, a couple of balls maybe. He did spin the ball prodigiously. I think initially he had a reputation of being a little wayward. But he was not on this tour without uh, the West Indies. He bowled very tidily and he bowled a good line. David took four wickets in that match in a thumping 10-wicket win 
that meant the tour finished on a high for Australia, even though they had lost the series 2-1. He was still on the radar of the selectors, but unfortunately, he couldn't find those miracle balls against Boycott, Barber and Edrich in the third test of the 65-66 Ashes. England were 234 for one and 303 for two, thanks to centuries from Barber and Edrich. And even though they were eventually bowled out for 4-8-8, David went wicketless during his 20 overs. He was dogged with a bat in Australia's reply, sticking round for over two hours for his 29. But Australia were eventually bowled out for 221, followed on and lost by an innings, thus denying Sincock a bowl in the fourth innings. He was never to play in a test match again. This is how cousin Dennis sums up his bowling. David's biggest problem was landing it all the time. I guess he tried to put so much on the ball, it was hard to control. If he had it on day and landed everything, he was unplayable. But quite often, you know, he'd, he'd bowl one or two full tosses and over, which they carted. But David wasn't just done with test cricket. At the end of the season, aged only 24, he was done with first-class cricket altogether. His last match for South Australia was against Victoria at the MCG, where Wisden reports that he came in for heavy punishment as he took one for 140 from 27 overs. A recurring back injury didn't help, but professional sport just wasn't for him, and retirement wasn't a difficult decision. Dennis can sum this up for us. He worked for a company called 3M here, but they all had jobs then, and he got transferred to Sydney. So in Sydney, he decided he would only uh, play club cricket. He'd concentrate on promotion in the business. David still lives in Sydney today. It was back to business for him, and it's back to Ash's business for us, as we welcome today's opening pair to the crease, Eric Russell and Peter Allen. And it's going to be Eric to face the new ball. Eric Russell was born in Dumbarton in 1936. He was a stylish opening batsman who played for Middlesex from 1956 to 1972, scoring over 25,000 first-class runs, including 41 centuries. He scored 1,000 runs in a season 13 times, and he played 10 tests for England between 1961 and 1967. His Ashes test came in 1965 in Brisbane. So welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, Eric. Thank you very much. It would be great just to understand first how you got into cricket. So you were born in Dumbarton. Did you, did you grow up in Scotland as well? No, we left, strangely enough, during the war. My father decided to go work in London. <laughs> my brother's a retired doctor. We were talking about it recently, saying, well, why on earth did we go down to London during the war? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's what happened. And we went to Middlesex place called Raiders Lane and my father used to travel up to London for business and come back so that's the way it started. And did he start playing cricket from a young age? Well I first started playing for Harrowtown Cricket Club near Raiders Lane and I I played for the uh, third 11 which were all men and I was wearing shorts and I was 14. That's where it started. And so from there, of course, I became interested in playing cricket. It was a small private school I went to. I decided I was getting quite interested in it. And a man called Jimmy Sirrett 
got hold of me and said, I'll take you down to the Chiswick Indoor School and you can have some coaching lessons on Saturday morning. And he said he would pay for them. And that, that's where it started. And when I was 15, I, Ernie Cannings was the coach who played a bit for Middlesex. And they recommended that I went on the ground staff at Lord's. So I asked them a bit more about it. Anyway, the upshot is that I left school and went on the staff. There were 30-odd boys on the staff. And <laughs> it was right cheap labour, I think. That's the way I'd use it, but not very kind to say it. But that's where it started. I think I was earning um, £2.50 a week. And we had coaching one afternoon. And there was the, they called it the Lord's Colts. And we had a match on a Sunday. And so there were 30-odd boys on that staff, and there's only 11 of you can play cricket on a Sunday afternoon. And, of course, living where I was, I also played still for the third 11 Harrowtown and developed from there. At what point did you dream about taking this further, maybe playing for Middlesex or even England? Well, I wasn't dreaming about anything, really. I think what happened was I, I was on the ground staff, I became head boy there, so I was an advance to be head boy because it gave you some privileges that the others didn't get. But I was scoring runs at that time for the Lord's Colts, and I think Middlesex took an interest. And apparently, so, uh, for some reason or other, Worcestershire took an interest. But of course, I was invited by Middlesex, so I joined their, their staff, and that's where it started. What was it like having Lord's as your home ground? I would say I was very, very lucky. It was a, a terrific place to play your cricket as a youngster. It was very impressionable. I was very fortunate. Um, there was a marvellous man called Brigadier Lysort Griffin. When I was on the ground staff, he used to give me sixpence a run. Well, we only had five, about five quid a week. <laughs> you weren't going very far with that. And then Millisex offered me a one-year contract, uh, so I accepted that. And what do you remember about those early years playing for Middlesex? It started off as the first baller, I think, against Kent at Maidstone. Doug Wright, but he was a fairly quick leg spin bowler. And I went in at, I think, number six. Played and missed at the first ball, and I thought, I'll play for a googly. It was a googly, and it bowled me out for naught. In the second innings, I got six. That was my introduction to first-class cricket. It was the middle of the season. I didn't play again until they, they picked me to play against Worcester the last match of the season, and I was bowled out for naught. So my introduction in that year was naught six naught, and I thought, well, I'm not, they're not going to give me another contract. Well, they did. So it was an entirely different game, of course, in those days, because we played on uncovered pitches. The county games, if it rained during the match, during the day, the covers only covered on the, um, the bowling ends. So the pitch itself was actually wet. So the variation on the number of pitches we played on was very interesting. Do you think that made for better batsmen with better techniques? I think it made me much more of an all-round type of player. You had to learn to play on slow pitches, good pitches, quick pitches, all sorts. And, of course, the pitches varied up and down the country, which, of course, now they wouldn't understand what I'm talking about because the variations all, all around, you know, in Yorkshire, Lancashire, wherever it was, they all differed in, in pace. But, we, well, of course, we were used to it. <laughs> the fact that it was happening was what you accepted. 
Did you have a particular philosophy towards batting? Did you have it in your mind to be an entertaining cricketer? No, that didn't come into it at all. You just took each match as it came along. And gradually you you developed a way of playing your own technique. I, I became mainly a front foot player because the variation on the pitches, if the ball was short, it would take off. The bounce of the ball was different to the modern day game. So I found that my best way to play, to cope with it, was to play on the front foot, giving myself enough time to move my from the front foot to the back foot, depending on the, the, the length of the delivery. I became a front foot player. Well, the only interesting place where I didn't was in Australia. What was your tactic against the short ball? Were you a hooker or would you sway out of the way? I did not consider the hook a percentage shot. So, you know, you can get into trouble hooking, trying to hook. You might get an edge. You might be at the top edge. You know, there are too many different ways of getting out to a hook shot. So I used to let it go. And the beauty of getting to Australia, as I've just said there, is because of the pace and the pitches, they were very good bouncy pitches, but they bounced in an authentic way. They weren't unusual. You know, they bounced and they were quick. But I quickly got used to it. Peter Allen was a right-arm fast bowler who enjoyed 10 years of state cricket for Queensland from 1959 to 1969. He played one test for Australia in 1965. In 57 first-class matches, he took 206 wickets at 26.19, and at the time of his retirement, he was Queensland's leading wicket-taker. His best bowling performance was 10 for 61. More of that soon. Peter, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you very much, sir. How did you first get into cricket? That was for South Brisbane, right? South Brisbane, yeah, just a cricket club. is the club I uh, grew up with and finished with, yeah. So I would have been sort of going on 18 when I first started playing for the club. I guess initially I was more anxious about making the first grade side with my club and then going on with them. And from that, then naturally you, you hope to play for your state and then you hope to play for your country. Were there cricketers at the club who helped you in these formative years? Yeah, well, you probably remember uh, Ken and Ron Archer who played cricket for Australia. Well, Ron, Ron was a, uh, a, a bowler um, the same sort of ilk as me, and he was older than me, but he uh, took me under his arm a bit and showed me a fair bit, bit of uh, the tricks of the trade, as did Ray Lindwall, uh, who wasn't with my club, but when we were playing for Queensland together, he, uh, he gave me a few useful tips. And when was that, when you made the step up to play for Queensland? 1959-60 was my, so it was only half a uh, half a season for Queensland. I didn't go on what we call a southern tour to New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Western Australia. Tasmania weren't in the Shield when I was playing. And then, I was, funny enough, I was transferred down to Melbourne with my uh, job. I made the Victorian practice squad but didn't make their side. And then you came back to Brisbane? Yeah, I was offered a job up here. Probably a dirty word to say now, but with a cigarette company uh, in Brisbane, and I was, I was anxious to come home because I wasn't wasn't very happy living in Melbourne. I was pining for the Sunshine State, so when I was offered this job, I grabbed it and came back. Then I got picked into the Queensland side virtually straight away, and just went from there. Peter and Eric were initially selected by their countries on overseas tours. 
Peter to the West Indies in 1964-65, and Eric to India and Pakistan in 1961-62. And they both had their difficulties on these tours. Here's Eric to start with. It was a very tough tour. We played five test matches in India, I think, and three in Pakistan. It was a very strange tour. The general opinion, I believe, at Lords, where it all happened, was that they said that they would never have go for another tour like that again. It, it, it was a, you know, a lengthy, lengthy tour. Difficult. It was a tough old game all the way through. The accommodation wasn't great. We didn't stay in many hotels. And the food was difficult to, to handle, of course. Eric played two test matches on that tour. His debut came in the first test against Pakistan in Lahore, where he scored 34 in the first innings. And then he played the fourth test against India, where he could manage only 10 and 9. Peter had a similarly disappointing time in the West Indies, but for reasons other than his performances on the field. I'd been bowling pretty well for Queensland, and Richie Benno kept riding me up, so that, that helped. He was a journal at the time, and... He came over and toured with us over in the West Indies, actually. I had had no luck in the West Indies. I got tonsillitis when we arrived over there, and I was in hospital twice in the West Indies with tonsillitis, where I was advised not to have the operation over there to wait till I come home to, to have it here. So that's what I did. I was supposed to have played in the first test, but didn't play any test matches. only played some of the island games. I remember we played against Barbados, and their opening bowlers were Wes Hall and Charlie Griffith. So that was not too good for our batsmen. Didn't worry me all that much. I got to know Charlie Griffith pretty well, and we, we came across a little agreement together that if either of us came into bat when the other one was bowling, we'd give them a ball to get off the mark. We batted first, and I came into bat, and Charlie was bowling. He didn't slow down, but it, but he threw it right up in the, in the slot, and I played, played a stupid shot. I, it was the best cover drive I've ever ever played, I think, which went for four. After I hit it, I was, went running off down the pitch and uh, got the other end, and Charlie's standing there, and he said, Hey, man, one, not four. And the next boy, Bobby, went was about 100 mile an hour, went straight past me. Yeah, I, I heard it fizzing past, didn't see it, and I thought, that's enough for me. So I, I swung at the next one, hoping to hit, hit it over the fence or anywhere, but a clean bowl, and I thought, thank goodness for that. And we, we lost the series 2-1. It was, it was basically declared the world championship at the time between the West Indies and us. But we got beaten 2-1, so I guess they were the world champions then. In the English summer that followed that Australia tour of the West Indies in 1965, Eric was finally selected for England duty again in the third and final test against South Africa at the Oval, some three and a half years after his last test appearance. I opened the batting with Bob Barber and uh, the first delivery I faced, I was out LBW, first ball. It was a lousy decision. (laughs) I didn't say anything, and, and it was, it, we had one over to play on the second day, one over before lunch, which is rather unusual. So we went out, and the first ball I got hit me uh, very high up. I played slightly on the back foot, and it hit me way above my pad. That will tell you how high up. The umpire gave me out. First ball. Walked off with a Bob, Bob Barbie said that was a diabolical decision. 
And we got in the dressing room, and I, I didn't say anything. There's no point in saying anything. And he, Bob, just stated, he said that was a terrible, terrible decision. It wouldn't have hit another set above them. You know, therefore, you know, in those days, if we'd had the camera, <laughs> I would have signaled for it, and it would have been not out. So that was my first introduction to playing Test Match Cricket in, in England. And yes, with a terrible decision. But you made your maiden half century in the second innings. I got 70-odd in the second innings, yes. Was that a proud moment to finally get some runs for England? Oh, yes, it was very good. Yeah, Very satisfactory, obviously, to get some runs. And do you think it was that performance that cemented your place on the tour to Australia that winter? Yes, uh, yes, it was, probably. Do you remember how you found out that you were going on the tour to Australia? We were playing a benefit match on a Sunday afternoon, Middlesex versus whoever, at a place, I think it was at Southgate, a cricket club, and they'd picked the England side that morning. And we were out in the middle fielding in this charity match, and they started to read off the um, the side. And of course, they read off... Uh, Bob Barber, Boycott, Edrich, suddenly my name appeared last. <laughs> but there nonetheless. Yes, that, that was how it happened. So they took four openers. I think the, the idea being that the pitches were quick and bouncy and that better to have two openers and number three an opener. That was the idea. So there were three, one, two, three were openers. So Eric was on the plane. The first time, by the way, that the MCC touring party had travelled by air rather than sea to Australia. And as soon as he arrived down under, Eric hit the ground running. I got off to a very good start and I was there ready waiting to, to play if I was picked. Eric scored 81 in the opening first class match of the tour against Western Australia on the 29th of October 1965. On the same day... Peter Allen was playing in the first Sheffield Shield match of the season for Queensland against New South Wales. He also found his form quickly, but that didn't necessarily mean he was making friends. I was not very popular at the time because um, in the, the, the lead-up, the first Shield game before the first test was between Queensland and New South Wales in Brisbane, and I had a purple spell with the ball and then broke Bobby Simpson's arm because we didn't have such things as arm guards or anything in those days. And I whacked him on the forearm and broke his arm, so he was, he was out of the first test. Funny is not the right word, but it was funny at the time, because he and I both worked for the same company. He, he was in Sydney, of course, and I was in Brisbane. So we knew each other pretty well. And all he said when he came back and I asked how he got, he said, well, thanks, mate, you know, and that was it. No, he didn't, didn't send me a Christmas card, no. Yeah. Injury was going to continue to play a part in both Peter and Eric's summer of 65, never more so than when the MCC played Peter's Queensland on the eve of the first test. Eric had followed up his 81 against Western Australia with 93 against New South Wales. His form continued into the Queensland match as he made 110 in a partnership of 201 with fellow centurion John Edrich. Peter Allen went wicketless on that opening day but did manage to clean bowl the captain Mike Smith on day two. When the time came for the MCC to bat again, Eric picked up where he'd left off in the first innings, racing to 45 before being forced to retire hurt. That was the, that was the before the, the first test match. Yes, I think that was when um, 
I got a broken thumb, batting. I don't think it was anything special, <laughs> nothing nasty. <laughs> no, I, I just think I, I played and missed and it hit me straight on the end of the thumb. Was Peter Allen the bowler? We'll have to leave that question unanswered for now, as neither Eric or Peter can remember. What we can say is that Peter had boycott, caught behind for a duck, and bowled six overs for 19. And when Graham McKenzie was declared unfit for the first test, it meant that Peter was in the 12 for Brisbane. I was at work when it came on the radio, and I remember two people from the office came hurtling down to where I was and screamed, you're in, you're in. And I thought, what are they talking about? And that was a bit of a pleasant surprise. Did it make it easier to make your test debut on your home ground? Oh, yeah, it, it was a warmer feeling to play there, that's for sure. Queensland, we had four in the side, which which was, was another plus. I mean, Wally Grout was the keeper, and Peter Burge, Tom Leavers and myself. Despite his thumb injury, Eric was fit to play in that first test and looking to continue his fine run of scoring. Brian Booth took charge of the Australians. Bobby Simpson's Peter Allen-inflicted broken wrist meant he had to miss out. Brian won the toss, and when he decided to bat, it meant that Eric was in the field. Yes, I was fielding extra cover, and David Allen was bowling. I forget who the bats were, number four, I can't remember his name. He was new to the game, a good young player, Australian. He hit the ball quite firm back, uh, extra cover, and I stopped the ball and threw it to... uh, mid-off, whoever that was, and I looked down and my shirt was covered in blood. So I'd split the web in between two fingers. <laughs> so off I go. Billy Griffith, the manager, said, you'll have to go to a hospital. We'll make a phone call. So they made a phone call and uh, they said, we were going to see a doctor in his practice. So I said, fine. They said, uh, uh, David, David Larter. He said, David, look after him. So we go to the, get into the doctor's surgery and the doctor looked at it and he said, well, I'm going to have to put stitches in here. So as he got the needle out, there was a clatter behind us. And it was David Larter falling all back onto a seat in shock. He didn't like it. He, didn't, he, he just sort of collapsed. I said, well, forget about him. Let's just get on with it. The injury curse had struck again. Australia went on to score 443 for six declared which included centuries for Bill Laurie and the debutant Doug Walters, the good young player that Eric talks about, who hit the ball to him at extra cover and so caused that injury. Once Eric was stitched up, he returned to the ground, not expecting to bat, but with England struggling to avoid the follow-on, he was thrust back into the action. So I said, I'll go out. And uh, so that's what happened. I, went, I think I, wanted, I went out and I think Fred was batting, Fred Titmus. I don't think I scored a run anyway. I just re- relaxed my right hand. It was my bottom hand. So as I was playing the ball, I took the hand off the off the handle. Eric made a painful naught not out and then wasn't required to bat in the second innings as the game meandered to a draw. Eric's injury meant Geoffrey Boycott was pushed up the batting order and he took his chance, scoring 45 and 63 not out. Did Eric ever wonder about what could have been? Yeah, I, I, I would probably say I was a bit unlucky, yes. <laughs> In a rain-affected match, it was day four before Peter got his hands on the ball. Wisden reports that England were unsettled by the leg spin of Philpott and the pace of Hawke and Allen as they were bundled out for 280. But Peter saw things differently to Wisden. 
I did not bowl very well, not not, not well at all. I put it down to the ball that they provided us with. It didn't have a seam, nothing to grip there. You could have held it anywhere and it was the same. That didn't cheer me up very much. Nevertheless, Peter took two for 58 from 21 overs on that fourth day. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got two, but it came as a complete surprise to me when I knocked Mike Smith over. Uh, and then I got one of the... The Thailanders, I forget who now. Higgs, was it? The next match of the series was in Melbourne over New Year. Eric was unavailable due to his injury. Peter had to make do with 12-man duties. But he wasn't just bringing out the drinks. I had to feel because we had injuries in the game and I know I had to go on the field. And Ian Redpath had played in the test match up here to replace Bobby Simpson. and He was the second substitute fields than we had, so it was a, a bit of a, a disastrous game, the injury was. Then I was dropped for the third test, which was in Sydney. But it turned out to be a blessing in disguise that you missed that third test, didn't it, as it enabled you to go back to Sheffield Shield cricket? Well, that's, that's right, yeah, it was good news, bad news sort of thing. And then that's when I played for Queensland against Victoria, and I got the 10 wickets in the innings. We batted first and only made 180, and then they went in. This is on the first day, and we had them four for 60 overnight. I had four the first night and got the, the other six the following morning, and we batted and bowled them out for 130, so we led by 50, and then we batted and we were none for 150 in the second inning. So we led by 200 at the end of the second day and still got beaten outright. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, amazingly, you took 10 wickets in that match and they chased down 387 to win. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well. And was that your best day as a cricketer, do you think, against Victoria? I think I bowled better at times. Naturally, that was the best result I've had. I mean, it's only happened three times in the whole of Shield cricket in Australia. So to be one of them was very satisfying. Did you get to take the ball home that day? No, I, I tried to, and the Victorians grabbed it. But then when they came up to play the re- return game up in Brisbane, they got me to come down and present it to me on the on the Gabba. That was quite nice. I've still got the ball more here, of course. An incredible performance. And as Peter said, it's only happened three times in Shield cricket. Tim Wall took 10 for 36 for South Australia against New South Wales in 1933. And Ian Brayshaw took 10 for 44 for Western Australia against Victoria a year after Peter in 1967. Peter's figures that day in 1966 were 10 for 61 from 15.6 overs. Remember, these were eight ball overs. And there was more good news, bad news following that match. So I was picked back into the Australian team for the fourth test in Adelaide. But in the process of uh, getting the 10 wickets, I broke broke my ankle. When I say broke my ankle, I split the bone in my ankle and I uh, virtually couldn't bowl. I was out of cricket for a full season after that. And looking back at that Ashes series, do you feel you're a bit unlucky with the way things turned out? Doing my ankle uh, didn't help and not bowling well in the first test. You know, if I'd have bowled well in Brisbane in the first test, I probably would have kept playing in the second, third and fourth test. But it wasn't to be. What did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? 
it meant a lot to me to play against England. It probably hasn't got the hype it has now. It wasn't really, wasn't called the Ashes back then. It was just, we're going to play England, and that was it. Nowadays, it's the Ashes this and the Ashes that. Despite all their eye-catching individual performances, injury had scuppered Peter Allen and Eric Russell's chance to really stamp their mark on the Ashes. England took the lead in the series when they won by an innings in Sydney, with Eric's fellow openers, Barbara Edrich and Boycott, all in the runs. When Eric had recovered from his hand injury, he returned to the MCC side in February and he scored 48 against a combined 11 in Tasmania on the eve of the fourth test. But this wasn't enough to force the selectors' hands. If, if the players are playing well, they're going to carry on playing, aren't they? There's no, there's no question about it. it didn't, uh, I didn't have any feelings of disappointment. There was, no, there was no point to it. You know, that's what's going on. What I had to do is when the other games were being played, the other state games were playing, I was picked because I've got to play. I've got to score runs. Just keep scoring runs and just do it. And that's exactly what he did. Australia reversed the result of the third test to win by an innings at Adelaide, which meant that the series was delicately poised at 1-1. The three openers were suddenly out of runs, boycott the top score of them with 22. Eric then made a century against New South Wales before the final match of the series. Did he think he had done enough to make the side for that decisive final test? No, uh, I, I don't recall. Uh, all, all I recall is when I'm going out the bat, just concentrate on the batting, wasn't thinking about anything else. Did you feel a touch unfortunate the way things worked out during that series? Yes, to myself, I feel a bit un unlucky. You can't show anything when you're a party of players and you've all got to keep yourselves together, you know. Of course, we'll never know how things would have turned out if an inform Eric had been picked for that final test. Only a victory at the MCG would see England win the series 2-1 and thus reclaim the Ashes. But a draw was all they could manage. The series was drawn 1-1 and the Ashes were retained by Australia. Following the Australian leg of the tour, Eric played all three test matches in New Zealand, scoring 56 in the final test. He then returned to England and was picked to play against the West Indies at Old Trafford. I played in the first test match at Manchester. I, got a, I, got, I think I got a 20-odd and a 30-odd, something like that. I was a bit unlucky on, one of, on two decisions, I can remember, if, you, if I dare talk about that to you for a minute. First innings, I played this ball, I got a top edge, and unfortunately my pad was slightly in the way, and so it hit the edge of my bat and hit the pad which pushed the ball up in the air, and Garfield Sobers dived and caught it at short square leg. <laughs> it's funny how you can remember things like that. Well, Wes Hall and Charlie Griffiths were the openers. Second innings, I'd got to 20-odd, 30-odd, and I was playing very nicely with these quickies. And I was playing Charlie Griffith. I was quietly hitting him through extra cover on the up for twos, right? And suddenly I played half forward again, and the middle stump went straight out the ground. I didn't see it. Peter Parfitt said it was a no ball. He was a foot over the front line with his front foot. I said, well, no wonder. Bent arm, of course. 
and he was renowned for it. So but, uh, he, he was a, a fine bowler, but there was a bit of a bit of a doubt about some of his actions. Well, I was very disappointed that they didn't pick me for the um, for the Test match at Lords against West Indies. I thought I was having got a couple of you know double figures, twenties, thirties. I thought I deserved another knock, and they didn't pick me. I was very disappointed about that. That's one of the few times I could say it. <laughs> and then you returned to the side for the third test at Nottingham. What did you make of all this chopping and changing during the 60s? I can't really grasp why, to be honest. They were inconsistent with their selections. No, no doubt about it. Then your last appearance did come at Laws though, didn't it, for England, against Pakistan the following year, in 67? Yes, I got 43 in the first innings, second innings. Oh yes, 12. I, was, I got out in a very strange manner, bowling from the pavilion end. And it was sort of um, a half volleyish on the leg stump, just leg stump. I, I went to hit it through mid-on, mid, between mid-wicket and mid-on. And I hit the ball, hit the back of the heel of my boot and went back on the stumps. <laughs> I did say a few words to myself as I came off. <laughs> it was a very unusual way of getting out. And of course, it shows in your the, the scorecard, it's bold. <laughs> Do you feel aggrieved at all looking back? No, no, I don't. I feel I was fortunate with, uh, with my career there. I did feel a bit unlucky, I think. But, you know, that's the game. I don't think my career was quite complete, to be honest. I could have played a few few more test matches. I had a fairly good benefit year. I can't remember how much. It wasn't a bad benefit year, but I, I don't. We didn't really, as a professional sportsman, I don't think in those days we really did earn what we did, we deserved. I'm not saying everyone, but there were quite a few that deserved more. I think. So I, I call myself in that group. <laughs> But otherwise, it wasn't there, you know, Graham. So, you know, you can't moan about it. It just wasn't there. But you did play in that one Ashes test, even though it was blighted by injury and you were on a very successful Ashes tour with lots of great contributions. What did playing in the Ashes mean to you? Well, it's very special, isn't it? You know, it was a good moment. A good moment indeed. And after all, it's not just about the cricket. What was life like on tour in Australia? Well, it was very good. Yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Would you go surfing or sightseeing or swimming? I, I couldn't swim. <laughs> I thought I'd learn to swim out there. I think Ted Dexter said, I'll teach you how to swim. <laughs> it didn't happen. Peter had hopes of being selected for the 1964 Ashes Tour, but the call never came. But that didn't stop him making his own trip to the UK in 1965. On the way back from the West Indies, came back to England and uh, Graham McKenzie was was with me and we talked our way into Lords and uh, I think England were playing New Zealand at the time and uh, we waved, I think Ted Dexter might have been the captain. I had, I had a game up in Scotland because my dad played cricket in Scotland and uh, I went and visited his old club, said hello and they invited me to play in a in a social game at the weekend, which I did. I nearly froze to death, so <laughs> it was cold. And, uh, and they said, where would you like to feel? I said, anywhere bar slips. I uh, was dispatched to, uh, to the covers, I think. What was the name of the side? 
Dad played for um, it was just just out of Edinburgh. Carlton Cricket in Edinburgh. Carlton, that's it. That's it. Carlton Cricket. Oh, there you go. My dad dad played for them there. Excellent. So you went to Carlton Cricket Club and said, oh, my dad used to play here. And they said, would you like a game on the weekend? Yeah, yeah. And they sort of said, well, yeah, you dad played here. Who are you? And I said, well, just a member of the Australian cricket team. Well, they did cartwheels. <laughs> After cricket, you went to Hamilton Island and you did marriages there. Yeah, I, I was a civil celebrant. I used to marry couples up there. So I married just on 3,000 couples. A lot, a lot of couples from England were out there too, came out as well and got married. That was certainly the happiest job I had. No one sat at a wedding. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave things for episode four, cruising round the beautiful Whitsunday Islands, ending up on Hamilton Island, watching Peter Allen perform his marriage ceremonies. A big thank you as ever to all of our guests, Dennis Bryan, Willie Rodriguez, and of course, our two Scottish One Ashes Test Wonders, Eric Russell and Peter Allen. Who wouldn't have wanted to be a fly on the wall when Peter turned up unannounced at Carlton Cricket Club Edinburgh in 1965 and told them he played cricket for Australia? No wonder they were doing cartwheels. If Eric's father hadn't moved the family to London during the war, maybe Eric would have played his cricket in Scotland. And if he'd looked out across the River Clyde from Dumbarton, he might just have spotted Greenwich Cricket Club, who play their matches at Glen Park Cricket Ground on Brisbane Street. Peter might feel at home there too. Stay tuned for our next show, which features Pat Pocock, our most capped One Ashes Test wonder. He played 25 times for England, but, luckily enough for us, only once in the Ashes. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs> <laughs>